Hey everyone, Stevie Taylor here, and welcome to episode 50 of the Gig Life Podcast. Yeah, yeah, crowd goes well. Yeah, okay, sorry about that. <clears throat> Wicked. So I want to personally thank all of my guests so far who have uh, been on the show, who have, who have given up their time, shared their lives and stories with me, and allowed me to share those stories with you. Um, I also want to thank you. I've said this before, if it wasn't for you, if you didn't download and listen to the episodes, uh, if you didn't keep coming back, we wouldn't be here having this conversation today, eh? So thank you so much for that. As well as continuing to bring you all these one-on-one episodes, stories, career snapshots, um, I have a bunch of other plans for the podcast this year, and that includes some more roundtable episodes. Um, I'm also starting the Gig Life Podcast Spotlight Series and that's where me and, and some friends sit down and we talk about musicians, artists, etc. that have inspired us, influenced us, and perhaps have inspired you also. So we'll go into detail about them, listen and analyse their music, share our memories. Should be very informative and a lot of fun. So looking forward to that. So follow along to the Gig Life podcast social media stuff and the, the website, that kind of thing to find out when that stuff's going to happen. So anyways, again, thank you. It's on with the show. Here's episode 50. It's a cracker. It's Ben Rogers. today is bass player, guitarist, songwriter, producer and audio engineer Ben Rogers. Jimmy Barnes, Cole Chisel, Mahalia Barnes and the Soulmates, Joe Bonamassa, Jade McRae, Reese Maston, Diesel and Karen Lee Andrews are just a few of the artists Ben has worked with so far in his career. So we've been trying for a while to get together for this podcast episode but Ben's a very busy man. He's either out on the road touring with Jimmy Barnes um, a stay-at-home dad while his wife Mahalia Barnes tours the world with Joe Bonamassa or he's in the recording studio producing and engineering records which brought us to this night so Ben asked me to meet him at a recording studio in Sydney as he was in town for a couple of weeks working on a session so I get there, I ring the buzzer Ben meets me at the door and escorts me into this big dining area and standing there at the kitchen is Jimmy and Jane Barnes. So a little starstruck, I said hello to them, and um, and then uh, Ben takes me through to the recording studio with all the guitars laying around, beautiful drum kit set up there, keyboards and microphones set up in the control room. Clearly there's something big going on here. So then Ben tells me he's here working with Cole Chisel. Um, they're currently writing new material, and Ben is engineering the session, so that's really exciting stuff. And um, I was a little scared to touch anything, to be honest. <laughs> so, let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce to you the laid-back, the positive, the grateful, the multi-talented Ben Rogers. Cheers.
I think we're rolling. Ben Rogers, welcome to episode 50 yeah, of the Gig Life Podcast. Woo. Half century. Yeah, man. <laughs> I made it. How are you, man? I'm good, man. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Um, yeah, we, we finally hooked us up. Yes. We're at Jimmy Barnes's recording studio. Yep, yep. Um, and you are currently engineering some cold chisel demos. Yes. The boys are writing. I'm very privileged to be here doing it because they're, as you know, one of the most incredible bands Australia has ever produced. And yep. to be in here amongst them as they're being creative is one of the coolest artistic things I've been involved in, to be fair. I've, and I've had a lot of great opportunities, so it's really good. Yeah, it's exciting, man. It's um fantastic setup. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's massive. Um now you're not, you you were living in Sydney for a while, but you're not living here anymore, are you? No, I I originally uh, I moved around a lot as a kid because my parents were in the military. So and then I settled in Canberra and went to uni there, and then moved up to Sydney about. Oh, I'm old, so what? Ten? Uh, more than ten now, like twelve years ago. Yeah. And um, and then just recently because I got kids now, and my wife Mahalia tours a lot. So we just thought we'd get out of the big smoke and moved mm-hmm. into the Southern Highlands. And uh, it's beautiful down there. I love it. Yep. And for the people that don't know, Ben's wife, Mahalia, is the daughter of Jimmy Barnes. That's I, correct. Right. Yep. The eldest daughter. Yep. The eldest daughter. Cool. Yep. Awesome. Um, yeah. So so you're in the Southern Highlands? Yeah. Must yeah. Be pretty cold this time of year, eh? <laughs> it sure <laughs> is. Yeah. I'm, get, I'm, I'm just trying to remember how – like in, when I used to live in Canberra, Oh yeah, that's that's. I used to like go to university, and I would not wear shoes all year round. Like yeah. when I first met Mahalia and and came to Sydney and was doing gigs, I only owned, I think I only had one pair of shoes, and so I would always do gigs like barefoot, you know. Oh really? Yeah, like Delta Goodrum, you know, me and Delta. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because I didn't own any shoes, like because I was just like I, you know, was broke, and I think. Uh, I slept in the front room of a share house in Surrey Hills on a fold-out mattress, with like those like half-inch thick mattresses because yeah. I was like, man, I don't care about anything except the music, man. You know, I was like one of those real diehard, you know, music or nothing. Everything I own needs to fit in the, my like little Ford <laughs> sedan and that's it. So, Oh, man. Yeah, and Mahalia was shocked, needless to say, when she first met me. She's right. like, you sleep there? <laughs> oh, far out. So, so when did you guys meet? Oh man, um, would have been around late two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, I think, because I I was working with um, uh, Jade McRae, mm-hmm. so I'd moved to Sydney because uh, Darren Percival, this incredible singer, brought me up. Basically, just said, "Hey man, you should come and work in Sydney," and I was like, "Oh yeah, man, I'd love to." Thinking. You know, he's just saying that, and then like a week later, he called and goes, "So yeah, I've got this gig, and I need you to be there." And uh, Dave Symes is playing bass, but I told him that you're going to get up for a few tunes, and I was like, "Oh my god!" So we went up, had a had a had a play, and the other guys in the band were like, "Yeah, this is cool. This this kid's all right." Um, so then I started coming up, doing gigs with him, and Jade McRae came to a gig, and then um, asked if I wanted to join her band, and so then I started doing that, and then Mahalia just came and sang BVs on a gig, mm. and uh, and I, I met her briefly. And, you know, we did the gig and then she split. And then we did a support for James Brown, 
which was incredible at the State Theatre. I think it was the last. I, I interviewed Jade a while back. She yeah. told me she told me about that that gig. Yeah, and that, yeah. And, and for all of us, it was yeah. just like we're like, oh my goodness, yeah. and uh, and we're doing the sound check, and and everyone's a bit nervy and on edge, and um, the drummer that was playing was just like. You know, he was nervous and like, oh no, this sound is terrible, and you know, this these this monitoring sucks, and like, is this the James? Not not James. James no, this Brown? is in Jade's band. Oh. This is in Jade's <laughs> band. So and like and like, we're all like, oh man, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't say that. And Mahalia just was like, just like, shut up, you idiot. Like, and I was like, man, I like this girl. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the first moment that I was like, mm, yeah, I, I, I'd like to get to know this girl. I like, she's got spunk, you know, like. And so that's why I always say the the moment I knew I liked her was when she like she just takes no no, no shit takes no shit yeah hundred percent and I love that and then yeah. it's you know it's one of the greatest things you know um, but yeah so that was man yeah ten ten years ago I think, yeah eleven years ago that James Brown gig or something yeah right right can I ask how old you are I am thirty five man you're young. Feel old, no. <laughs> I got kids. I feel old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah no. That's cool. So um, now let's talk about your musical upbringing in Canberra. Yeah. Um, well, my I guess firstly, my dad's a musician. He's a guitarist and a singer, and so uh, he he played in bands when he was young, and and then when I was born, he basically joined the Air Force. Because he was like, oh, I got to get a real job for my family and be an upstanding citizen and blah blah blah. Um, but he always played music, so growing up, there was always guitars in the house and and you know he was always singing and and he'd take me to his band rehearsals on the weekends and stuff like that. And I loved it. And um and then one day I like was like, man, I I think I want to play the guitar, you know? Like so I'd steal his guitar from under the bed because he'd keep he had this nice Telecaster that he'd keep under the bed. And uh, he'd be out at work and I'd get home from school and I'd pull it out and just play it upside down. Like I, I, I was just left-handed, so I'd play his right-handed guitars upside down. Like, And I'm like, yeah, like Jimi Hendrix, man, this is awesome. Sorry, do you still play that way? No, okay. no. I, I was going to ask you that. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I did. When I first started I played because I couldn't afford left-handed instruments. Right. So I played upside down bass for the first year or two in bands and stuff. But um. But, yeah, I'd steal my old man's guitar and then he, he was like, man, my strings are so rusty all the time. What is going on? And, and, he, and he worked out that I was, you know, stealing his, his guitar. So he bought me this crappy little nylon thing and, and I was just obsessed with it. And then he bought me an electric guitar and I can't remember how old I was, but I, I was trying to – I was up to learning bar chords, right, and uh, – and it hurt my fingers too much, so I just quit. <laughs> <laughs> and he's never let, he's never let me forget it. Like he's like, I sold this beautiful Kayari nylon string guitar to get you an Ibanez electric, <laughs> and then you just stop playing because it hurt your fingers. And so I stopped for a few years, and then I think I would have been about we were living in like Newcastle or something, and. And I think I didn't fit in at the school because at the high school it was like everybody surfed, right? They were all like bleached hair, surfy guys. I was like super skinny, super pale, just like a big, you know, would go home and just listen to like Santana records and all my friends were like, hey, what about corn? And I was like, yeah, no, but Santana, like a Braxis album on vinyl is great. And they're like, what? Um, And so I mowed lawns for about, 
three months, you know, the old days when you get like five bucks a lawn and mowed enough lawns till I could get like a shitty Yamaha Pacifica guitar. And then from then I just never, never stopped playing. It just reminds me of a classic meme. Well, not, I don't know if it's a classic yet, but <laughs> I saw a meme, I don't know if it was Instagram or something today, the GoFundMe of the old days, oh, kid, yeah. kid pushing a lawnmower. Oh, man. That's a, 100% <laughs> exactly right, so eh? true. Yeah. And you just get ripped off so bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah five bucks, it's an acre, but, you know, I'll give that, you five that, bucks. That's it. Like, <laughs> this, this kid was struggling too. The grass is really long and, you know, he, yeah. he's only two foot tall, you know. It's yeah. Classic. Uh, and, that's, and that's what I did and, and, I, and I got this guitar and I love playing it. And I would just play in the garage and I had a mate that I played with and, blah, 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 and we do a little bit of stuff and my cousin played guitar. And then we moved back to Canberra from Newcastle and my dad could tell that I liked, was really getting into the guitar thing, but he was trying to be, because I'd quit last time, so he was playing it cool. And so him and his mate, this guy David Buckmaster, who was the bass player in my dad's band, would go, hey, we'll give you, um, you want to do the gig? And I was like, oh, man, you want me to play on the gig? And I was, they're like, yeah, yeah, and I'm like 12, I think. Like, yeah, yeah, we'll let you play like one or two songs, you know, maybe like LaGrange by ZZ Top or <laughs> something. I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. And like, yeah, and we'll pay you 10 bucks. And I'm like, great. And they're like, but you got to help set up the PA. And it was like those old school yeah. fridge PAs, like, yeah. and I'm like 12, like lugging it on the, on the trolley. And, <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is the best. I'm really doing it. I'm living the dream. <laughs> and so I started there um, and just ended up playing with my dad and then a guy would come to a gig and say oh hey how old's your son you know and I think I think I was like 15 and I started playing in like covers bands around Canberra um doing like disco and funk I got I joined some band called Fizzy Pop uh when I was about 15 and I was like no if there's photos it'd be horribly embarrassing but we used to go and do gigs in like I had mustard flares <laughs> and like a full paisley body shirt and the whole band would get full kitted out 70s style and, and do like, you know, car wash and all those kind of like really naff disco songs. But for me as a young guitarist, because I was playing guitar back then, it was just so great to play all that like Nile Rodgers chic stuff and, you yeah. know, I was real lucky. I went from playing like rock covers with my dad yep. to playing like funk, like, disco stuff um so in hindsight apart from the outfits you know it was a great place to get my butt kicked learning like real killer rhythm parts yeah and um and then after that (laughs) i I, in in college i was like you know how you go have have those career advisors you know and so (laughs) yeah i was like you know a teenager so i was like after wanting to just chase girls pretty much and get drunk and and so I went to my career advisor and they're like so Ben you know you could do really if you put your mind to it you could really do well in year 12 and I was like yeah yeah you know but I'm I like playing guitar and I'm doing gigs and and they go oh well um if you want to apply for the university at the ANU in Canberra you can do the jazz course and you and you don't need year 12 you can just finish after year 11 which oh, is wow. the worst thing you can say. So I was like, sweet, all right, cool. I'm not turning up to any more classes for year 12. <laughs> so basically I just like just bailed on school, went home and practised like, you know, five, six hours a day on guitar and bass Yep. because at that point uh, 
I ended up playing bass, upside down bass, in a ska punk band because my mate who had been the bass player in our band got into a university course for guitar. And so I was like, oh, you should play guitar in, in the band and I'll play bass, you know, so we flipped over. And then I went and did the auditions. I, I bought a left-handed bass just in time for the auditions mm. and and did it and didn't get in on guitar, but they're like, yeah, do you want to come to uni for bass? And I was like, ah, uh, sure. <laughs> so then I was like a bass player. Right. So basically. What, what, what's the audition? Uh, you, you, I think back in, if I remember you had to play, you went and played at the ANU, you, you would play two pieces, I think. You had to play a jazz standard because it was for a jazz course. Did you choose, did you get to choose the song? Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, okay. Yeah, I can't, I think I did something like real lame, like Summertime, you yeah. know, or something like that. And oh, I can't remember what, it, maybe I just played an original as well. And then you have to sight read. And then they'll ask you a few theory questions, which I totally sucked at because I was completely self-taught up to that point. Um, but, yeah, luckily they let me in because yeah. <laughs> I don't know what my life would have been like if they said no. Right. So, yeah, I ended up going to uni studying jazz bass. Um, right. How long was that for? Uh, that was, uh, I think the course is four years and I did three and a half because... I was studying, I got three and a half years through and that's when I'd met Darren Percival and so I'd started, I was driving up to Sydney minimum two, maybe three times a week from Canberra to Sydney so I'd drive up on a Thursday, do a gig, finish at midnight, get in the car, drive back, Mm. do uni for the day, Mm. get in the car, drive up, do a gig on Friday night, drive back, either have a gig in Canberra on the Saturday or in Sydney and then so I was doing this crazy commute in an old like early 80s Holden Gemini that had rust all th- – you know what I mean? It was like when yep. you think about it now, you're like, damn. And like the whole car was full of like me and the drummer would do it because this young drummer, uh, we were both doing all these gigs. And and I said to my teacher, Erica Jai, who's just this incredible bass player that's played with like Shaka Khan, Freddie Hubbard, you know, all his session stuff in LA and he's just the sweetest guy, incredible bass player. And I said, look, man, I'm really worried. Like I'm doing this commute and I've got all these gigs, you know, and it's great. I'm working in Sydney. I'm doing all this stuff, you know. And he's like, oh, man, you know, well, what do you want to do? And I, and I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, do you want to play music or, you know, do you want to teach music or what's your end goal? And I was like, man, I just want to play. Like I want to play in bands. I want to make art. I want to go and tour. And and he just looked at me and he goes, well, then why are you still in my office? Mm. And so I just left uni. I never finished. Right. Basically I just, he said that to me and I went, okay. So I just like basically packed up, sold a bunch of my gear to get some money and uh, moved up to Sydney. Are you able to ever go back and finish? Uh. If anyone from the ANU is listening, uh, please let me know because I'd love, I'd love to. It'd be great. I've done so much. I'm still paying the hex debt. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. Uh, yeah. it, I, look, I, would, I would love to finish it but. <clears throat> yeah, so close. I, I was so close but it's hard because music is music, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, I, guess, I guess you're in it and you're doing it. That's what I mean. Um, like, and what I guess what. What's the gain? Yeah, well, look, it, it's always nice to have 
a qualification that says, hey, you've studied music to this point, but mm. for me, I'm living my dream. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like I never thought growing up that I'd get to go on tour and play it, you know, studying jazz, like, I never thought I'd play a gig at Carnegie Hall, you know. Like it never crossed my mind. Like I never thought I'd play anywhere outside of Australia, you know. Um, I never thought I'd play at a bunch, most of the venues I have played in Australia, you know. Mm. My dream was just as a kid was like, man, maybe I could work every Friday and Saturday doing gigs and then maybe get a job at the music store and Mm. sell guitars and, man, that's I'd be a musician. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I I had my dreams – but, like, you you know, it's one of those things where when they come true, you're just like, oh, man, I can't believe it. I'm really, you know, and that's the thing. I'm, I always say, like, I'm the luckiest person in the world, you know. I get to from whoa, 15 or 16, all I've done is be a musician. I haven't worked a normal job mm-hmm. since then. And to do that as a musician, like, I... I absolutely know how lucky I am to have that opportunity because mm. I've seen so many people who I think are absolutely incredible, talented musicians, artists, like, you know, through whatever circumstance they haven't had that same luck or opportunity. So, you know, I'm truly blessed, you know, to mm. be still here doing it now at 35, mm. you know, from mm. 15. So it's 20 years of being just a straight-up musician, you yeah, know, which is awesome, you know. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's really great. Okay, so you've packed the car up, you, yep. move, you move into Sydney. Yeah. All right. Yeah, and so, yeah, basically I um, I moved up and where did I stay first? I think I just ended up crashing on a couch of my friends. My friends had a share house in Bondi Junction. Um, Daniel Mifsud, who's a great incredible singer and one of my best mates and he was living with um this guy Mark Palmer who's in a band called the Hipstones who mm. who they they live in New York and I think they work with like Weedus and stuff now. Right. Um and so I'd crash on their couch and then we ended up I ended up playing with both of them like and so we became really close and then I think we all found well I, th- I think it was Dan Mifsud who was like looking through uh, like the Wentworth Courier or something like that, you know, the, we call it the Book of Dreams, you know, because it's like all those houses you could never afford and like living in the eastern suburbs and like we're like, damn. And he was like flipping through it and then in the back he just spotted like it was like house for rent, um, 500 bucks a week in Watson's Bay and we're like, what, what? <laughs> and so he calls this guy and, and the guy's like, yeah, look, um, you know, we're ripping down the house in – six to 12 months, we're just waiting on approvals and so we can't really rent it because like with an agreement like proper because as soon as the council comes, we want to kick whoever it is out. Yep. And so we're all musicians. We're like, hey, we'll take yeah, it. Man. <laughs> so basically the first house I moved into in Sydney looked out basically over off the cliffs out to Sydney Harbour and I was paying like 120 bucks a week rent. And it was this old 70s, like, beach home looking. It was terrible. But that was what I thought Sydney was like. So that's that's a, yet another, like, you know, living the blessed life is that <laughs> I would sit up out of my fold-away bed in the morning and look out the window 
and it's just like ocean views. Wow, and, man. And so I was like, man, Sydney's great, you know. People are like, oh, it's really hard here. And I was like, man, it's beautiful. <laughs> and, so, and so we lived in that house, which was great, with a whole bunch of musos. So we would jam all the time. We'd have people over for parties and, and uh, was playing lots of gigs. I started doing heaps of like gigs with, with those guys at like the Sheaf, um, Opera Bar, all those usual yep. suspects, you know, just playing three, four times a week, just loving it, you know, playing bass at this stage. I was just a bass player then. So um, still working with Darren Percival and then Jade McRae called, so I started working with her. Um, and then uh, and then at, around that point was when I met Mahalia. And so just as we left that house, I started working with her and then we moved. They tore the house down, which was sad, <laughs> you know. <laughs> What's there now? Uh, well, probably some incredible multi-million yeah, dollar. Yeah, yeah, you could tell everyone you home. lived there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah man. Yeah, man. Um, and so I think then we moved to Surrey Hills. So we were living in Burke Street next to the Carrington Pub, which is now a trendy pub, but back then it wasn't. And um, and uh, yeah, it was just doing doing gigs around town, like just really happy because it was you know when you're young you're just basically doing gigs, getting drunk, hanging out. You know, um, but then yeah, I started working more seriously with Jade, and we were doing bigger shows. Mahalia asked me to join her band. Started doing some shows with her, and then around that time, I think yeah, when we were in Surrey Hills, I think because Christian Natard, who's who I think he was on the bass mm-hmm. player, like um, who's one of my favorite bass players in the country. Um, well, he's not. He doesn't live here anymore. But you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, he he went to do something. I think he was on tour in America, or maybe one of the first times he split. And he recommended me to Depp for Guy Sebastian's gig. So then I was like, Oh man, shit! All right, I'm doing a proper like big gig, you know, like because you know he had big singles out and stuff. I yep. think it was like uh, what was the album? It's like his kind of rocky album that he did with like David Ryan Harris and stuff. So that's how I met. I've met David Ryan Harris at that point. And so I'd, I started working with him um, and that was with like Terrapi, uh, who else, Rob Wolf, um, you know, Terrapi, you know, so great to play with Terrapi. Like what a, what a drummer, yep. what a guy. Um, yeah, and so I started doing gigs like that um, and so it kind of levelled up again for me. Mm. And, uh, and then... And then um, I got I can't it's weird though cuz I was at this point I was like doing so many gigs that I I actually started to burn out a little bit right you know what I mean um and so it was around that time as well I was doing stuff with him I'd got called to do a bit of stuff with like the young divas and stuff like when they were a band before they all split and did their own stuff mm-hmm. um and I was just working heaps to the point where I think Mahaley and I had started dating and we would just hang out and I would just get back to the house and just just be wrecked and yep. and um and that was a real turning point for me because that's where as a musician I kind of had to make that choice of do I want to do gigs for money or do I want to do gigs for art you know as a musician right and so around that point was one of the first times Jimmy Jimmy Mahaley's father, Jimmy Barnes, asked me to play with him. And I went 
I went along to a see a gig and I was like, holy shit. Like, I've never seen anything like this. You know, you hear all the stories and blah, blah, blah. And he's the sweetest guy, but like on stage, it just like blew my mind the right. intensity. And then when I got on stage and played a gig. Uh, of Jimmy or the band? The whole lot? Just everything. Okay. Everything about it is like. In, and I was like, whoa, this is full on. And then when I got on the bandstand and was playing with him, just the sheer intensity and commitment and hard work, like just what he puts into every single gig, basically I just made a choice in my mind and said, you know, you know fuck, if this guy have me in his band, I'll quit everything else mm. because I want to learn how to have that much just integrity and commitment to doing a show at like Reeves B Workers on a Wednesday night. You know what I mean? Like yep. I'd never like <clears throat> seen that intensity before. Like I've like worked like with incredible artists who are super talented and it's not to say that they're not like absolutely into what they're doing, but there was just something about his energy and the vibe on stage that just made me go like, man, teach me, you know, you're twice my age and you're just like – wiping the floor with me every night like mm. I'm wrecked and you're like let's do another set and I'm like oh my god oh, <laughs> just let me rest you know like um and so at that point yeah I'd kind of like blew off a lot of the gigs I was doing which freaked me out because mm. you know as you still, got, still got to make some coin don't you totally totally and so that was a real big mm. gamble um which you know it, it was there was times where it was hard because at that point Mahalia and I had moved in and she just bought a house and, uh, and you know, boring music stuff. But financially it's real hard when you're trying to, like, uh, you know, start a life and, like, you want to have a home, you know, yep. which is a dream, a yep. strange dream. Um, and I remember there was, like, a lot of times where it was, like, two-minute noodles yep. every day vibes because we were like, oh, man, how are we going to pay the mortgage? We don't have a gig this week because mm. you just don't know. And And... And that's because I was still – I wasn't quite in Jimmy's band yet or anything like that, but I'd made the choice that I was going to cut back. Um, and uh, and it was it was a bit lean for a while there. But Were, were you started – did you start second-guessing that decision to cut back? Totally, totally. Like – Were you having to hustle a little bit for some y- gigs? Yeah, like yeah. that's happened a few times, like even, even kind of recently, like um, – like that period happened and then I started working with, with Jimmy and with Mahalia as well. We we did like a, I think her first album was around then but um, at the beginning like we were doing shows and she couldn't pay me because she wasn't getting enough money to pay her band even. So some of us would do gigs and she had a great friend in Melbourne who was a fashion designer so she'd be like, Ben, look, I can't pay you but if you come around to Ivan's, you know, fashion, you know, his, his shop, he, he said you can pick a jacket. <laughs> oh, right. So we do these like tours where we do like three or four shows in Victoria and and she's like, I can't pay you. But here, have a jacket. Yeah. Which, you know, I still have all of those jackets. Yeah, cool. Because they mean like more to me than cash, you know what I mean? Because right. it was that commitment to the art, like where you're like, you know. And so that was lean. Um, then we kind of, things got better. Um, then we had our first child, Ruby, um, and when she was young, things got real tight again 
um, just because there was no gigs. And, and it's that thing when you start working solely with people mm. and then say for whatever reason like they might go and do a side Cy- project, cycles. people just forget you're alive, you know. Right. Like which happens to a lot of musicians. Like you get a great gig and people just go, oh, he's out with that guy. You know what I mean? Which it's not. there's nothing bad about it. It's yep. just one of the things like they go, oh, I, I just assumed you were out on Yeah, channel. yeah, right, I understand. And um, and so it got was getting real slim this one point where I was like calling all my old mates going, man, I'll teach, I'll like yeah, right. work at a store, like, I, you know, it's like i got to pay the mortgage, you know, like. Mm. And that happened to be just before Mahaley did the voice. Okay. Um, and just as she was doing the voice, I randomly – was giving a guitar lesson to this guy, Marcus Catanzaro, and chatting to him going, oh, you know, what What do you need the guitar lesson for? And he's like, oh, I'm working, I play on, I do X Factor. And he goes, I'm in the band, like, but we mostly mine. But I play and I was like, oh, cool. And he's like, you know, and I was like, oh, we, we might have vaguely known each other because he worked at Harbour Agency, a booking agency. And, and I was giving him a lesson and, and he was like, yeah, I might be playing with this guy that might win X Factor. I was like, oh, cool. You know, I didn't watch any. TV shows like that and and um, and then Gary Pinto, who's one of Australia's greatest singers, mm-hmm. um, called me and goes, oh, man, I'm on X Factor. And I was like, oh, I met this Marcus guy. And he goes, oh, yeah, cool, blah, blah, blah. We're chatting and he goes, would you be interested in playing with a X Factor person? And I was like, man, look, at this point I'll, you know, I'll jump out of a cake in a pair of underpants for money. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I was like, dude, I'll do anything. And he goes, oh, well, this is like a rock guy. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. I don't know. And then uh, I got a call just as Hay was doing the voice, which still we didn't know what was going to come from that. Yep. And and just before that, basically I got a call from this guy Andrew Furs, who's working on X Factor, and said, "Hey, look, this young kid Reese Maston has won X Factor. Okay, it's gangbusters. How he's huge. We want you to play guitar because we know you play with Jimmy. Um, so we want like a guitarist with cred, which you know I was like I don't have any cred." But whatever. Um, and I said, yeah, man, 100%, I'll do it, you know, and uh, rocked up. And it was one, like, inc- it was like Beatlemania. Like when he won. Oh, really? Dude, when he won X Factor, like, and I had no idea, you see, because I didn't watch the show. Right. And so we rocked up and we're like, and I meet him and he's this, like, real great kid. Like he was like, what was he, like 17 or something when he won the show? He was real young. Mm. And he was just a real good kid, like, you know, his family had immigrated over from the UK. He was living in Adelaide. And I heard him sing and I was like, holy shit, this dude can actually sing. Yep. Like, damn, okay, all right, cool, okay, you've piqued my interest, you know. Stylistically, the music's like maybe not my total thing, you know. But then he was doing like the show. They were like, oh, yeah, so we're doing like Dream On by Aerosmith and we're doing you know, Guns N' Roses and we're doing this and we're doing that and, like, rock versions. I was like, oh, okay, this is, like, the shit that I kind of grew up with when I was, like, 15. Like, great, okay, cool. And, um, man, like, those first few shows, like, I'd done big shows with Jimmy at that point. Like, we'd done tours and, like, and his audience is, like, wild. But yeah, right. but Reese's audience at that point, like, it was like Beatlemania. The, the, the first tour... The kids would scream so loud that the PA, you couldn't hear. Like they screamed louder than a PA. Wow. Like which today's PA is loud. So like we had in-ears and you, if you took your in-ears out, 
like for the first like two songs when he walks on stage, like you would have that thing where you know when it's so loud that you just they start yeah. shutting and down. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. like that. It was and um, me and all the guys in the band were just like, what have we stumbled upon here? What what is going on? Like whoa, um, so that was like actually a really great like for me it saved me in a financial musical finance sense but musically the bunch of guys were like all you know my age or a bit younger um and uh it was just a real great couple of years of touring because we were doing these huge shows like just being absolute hams you know living out our bedroom like guitar hero dreams you know right um and yeah, so I was playing guitar for that. So that okay. was like kind of the transition of when I first started working for Jimmy, I played bass and a tiny bit of acoustic. And then I started playing guitar for him by virtue of, I think he was like, oh, they call me Jazz Boy with, in Jimmy's band because he'd be like, hey, you can play guitar, right? And I'll go, yeah, sure. <laughs> And so then I'm like, oh, crap, i got the guitar. <laughs> and so like he'd, have, he'd make albums and he'd be like, oh, yeah, man, you play mandolin, right? And I was like, yeah, 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 it's yeah, mandolin. I can play mandolin, sure. <laughs> and so I'd be like, damn, oh, I need a left-handed mandolin. Oh, I can't get one. So I just learned upside down to play whatever <laughs> the song was on mandolin, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up playing guitar in his band and then got booked to play guitar for Reese. And then it was just like I was a guitarist, you know, like I was back to being, you know, when I was a young kid, young teenager, I just played guitar. Mm. The only person I played bass for at that point was Mahalia because mm. I'm the bass player in the Soulmates in her band. Okay. And um, and then, yeah, I just did that for three or four years. We did huge tours like um, like he was doing like 8,000 people in Orca Spark Arena in Auckland and stuff like that, like mm. it's huge, which was, and it was really great. And then he and I bonded and we started like talking about writing music together and and it was around that point where I was like really wanting to start like touring less and doing more production, engineering, mixing. Were, were you into the production stuff at that stage though? Uh, H- had you been doing a bit of it? I've always, I've always been into it in the sense that – um. You know, because throughout this whole that whole period, I'd done sessions and recordings and stuff like that, and I love the process. You know, I love yeah, yeah, yeah. being in a studio because yeah, me too. Playing music is killer, and when you play to an audience, it's the greatest feeling when it's vibing. But when there's that creative energy in a studio, and you're like, you're making art. It's like being a painter, but with a bunch of other people. Yep. So, like, everyone feels the vibe together and when you really hit something, everyone's like, oh, my God, this is the best. And it's just such a great moment of feeling, you know, and to capture that is great. And I, I'd always been the bass player or the guitarist in that feeling. And I'm, like, always looking at the producers going, oh, hey, so what are you doing? Why? How does it come? How come it sounds this good? Or mm-hmm. why does it sound this bad? Or, like, you know, I'd always want to know for my own thing because as a musician you want to go, Hey, how did you make my bass sound so good then? Yep. So when you go to the next session, you go, "Hey man, just uh, throw the bass through a Neve and a, you know, a DBX one sixty, man. You know, like you <laughs> acting like all cool. Oh man, this guy knows his stuff, you know. So you always do it in that way. But um, yeah, I just wanted to start being able to capture the art, you know, like because 
that's my other dream, you know, other than playing and being a muso is, you know, I wish I could be in on the vibe when Dark Side of the Moon got recorded right. or I wish I was in the band at Donny Hathaway live at the Bitter End or, you know what I mean? Like to be immortalised. Gotcha. To, to do something that affects people long after you're gone, mm-hmm. that's like to me more than fame and fortune. That's like, you know, like if, you know, 50 years from now some kid's sitting in a room and he's real down and he's got no friends and he puts on a, you know, whatever it will be then, like he he tells his mind to think about music. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, then like, just, your brain wants to listen to this. And, yeah, yeah. And the AI says you should listen to soul music and like something I played come on and came on and it affected him and then he became a musician or a painter or a engineer then at the end of the day I feel like the whole reason I'm in music has been a success because isn't that why we do it yep. you know like to make people feel and to motivate them or to so that they can feel like they're not alone in their feelings in the world and yeah and so I wanted to get deeper than just doing that on a bass. I was like, I want to try and start doing that with the whole picture. So so Reese Reese and I started like concocting like maybe, hey man, like let's make an EP, let's bust out, you know, and do this and and he at that point he wanted out he got out of his deal with Sony and and then he was like, "Hey man, like do you want to produce my EP?" And I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> I've never produced an EP, let's do it, Mm. you know, kind of like the, hey, can you do this? Yeah, I can do that, you know, false bravado. Mm. And so we got John Paul Fung who's like uh, he's one of the best engineers, best producers in Australia, incredible. And I'd I'd met him because he'd done Mahalia's Volume 1 EP. Right. Um, And he's worked with like everybody. Like he was working with Scott Horscroft, so he did like Birds of Tokyo. Right. Used to work at BJB as an in-house en- engineer and stuff, um, and so we got him on board. Who's like he's going to make you sound good no matter what. He's that good. He's like a, a genius. And and we started producing his uh, first EP after Sony, and we wrote a bunch of songs, and we ended up writing the first single from that. That was from that EP, uh, Rebel and the Reason, that did pretty well. And I was like, man, I had such a good time in that experience I was like, okay, I need to like mm-hmm. find a way to do this more like because I was just like hooked on the feeling of it. Um, so then we did that. Then basically he was like, can you produce my whole album? And I was like, yeah, me and JP. And he's like, no, just you. And I was like, yeah, I can do that as I do with everything. And so then we came into this studio here, Jimmy's studio and Freight Train because we didn't really have much of a budget. And we tracked his whole album we wrote we we went overseas on a writing trip that Millie from APRA helped us out with and uh, Marie Hambly and from uh, EMI so we went on this writing trip and wrote with a bunch of people um, in in the US and wrote with Chris Cheney from The Living End um, and then Reese went and wrote with Diesel and so we got all these like great people on the record and then came back to Australia and camped out in Jimmy's studio and basically I played all the bass, most of the guitar, 
some keys, some string synth parts, and then we'd send the tracks to L.A. And Mike Avename, who's a great drummer, drummer yep. yeah, he would play and he and I would be like Facebook messaging at like 3 in the morning. He'd be like, oh, man, I'm in the studio. I'm like, okay, I need it to feel like this and I want like the <laughs> snare to be like a gush and I want the toms to be like, you know, like AMS, you know, Neve kind of Because he, to- he totally engineers himself, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. and so he would yep. basically do all the drums. I, I'd, I'd like build a MIDI version of what gotcha. I felt like I was like and then I'd write an email or call him and we'd chat and he'd fire it back. At, he'd do it like in the middle of the night, our time. So in the morning we'd come into the studio and open it up and be like, wow, yeah, all right, new drums, woo um, And that's how we made the album. Mm flying back and forth and then I would kind of replace bits that I didn't think felt right that I'd done on the demo mm-hmm. and we built up the tracks and and then we uh and then you know we finished the record and and then we all flew over to um we did basically we we looked at who were going to get to mix it cuz I at that point I felt confident as a producer but as a mixer I was like oh yep man this is like a whole other can of worms and and I, I really want Reese to have the best product. And I was like, nah, let's, I'll, I'll put in a mix, but let's get some other people. And so mm-hmm. we had mix submissions and ended up this friend of Mike Avenames, Bobby Holland. Um, his mix, we all liked the best, even me. I was like, yeah, it's better than, that's way better than mine. <laughs> Mine's terrible. <laughs> I think I, my, my mix was so bad. I don't know what I did wrong. I did something real wrong. It sounded terrible. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we all flew over to Nashville and basically I got to sit in on him mixing Reese's album. We're on, in Nashville. Um, he, he has a place in Berry Hill. Okay. Um, uh, what's the name of the studio? Um, Oh, man, the name's escaped me. It'll come back, I'm sure. Uh, oh, I can't remember the name. But it's a great – he's got this great old SSL console and it was so cool for me because that was the first time I'd been – I just sat and watched him mix, you yeah. know. Like I'd been around before. I'd, you know, seen Tony Buchan, like who's a great bass player and someone I I looked up to as someone – like he's someone who I was like, man, I wish I could be like Tony Buchan. He's a great bass player, great musician. He's been in bands. He's toured. He's transitioned to being a producer. And I've and you know you've watched him. You know he, he makes great records. You know like and works with great artists. And I'm like, man, I want I want to be like that. You know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I watched this mix process in um, Pentaveret. That's what it's called. Uh, yeah, well, I knew it'd yeah, come it back. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Pentaveret Studios in Nashville. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, basically watched him mix and and I fell in love even more because I was like the tactile yeah. on the mixing desk and he's like, just oh, yeah, like let's bring the vibe this way. And I was like, oh, this is awesome, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, that record got done and then we had to do the touring cycle and all the promo of that. So, But after that I was like even more like, okay, i got to find a way to get more into this world. And so I just started – you know, any opportunity I could get, I was like, hey, can I come and hang out in the studio, just do some engineering? Hey, how do you do that? What do you, like, even more so, real nerdy. I oh, said, so when you patch, like, why do you have the compressor set like this? And why do you have, yep. um, and then, and then it got to a point where, uh, basically, 
I felt confident enough that I could start saying, hey, can I, I'd like to produce this or I'd like to work on that. And it was really great. Yanya Boston, who's one of my dearest friends, he um, said, hey, I'm working with this girl, Miss Murphy, who's Karen Lee Andrews. And I was like, oh, man, she's an incredible singer. I love her voice, you know. And he's like, yeah, yeah, um, we want someone to produce and mix an EP. And I was like, oh, I'd love to do it. I'm ready. This is, I'm ready to do it. And, uh, and she, we met up and she said, yes, another thing where I'm just like super lucky. And, um, and that was the first thing that I like basically engineered, produced, mixed, and basically sent it off to mastering. And, um, and it sounds fucking great, man. Oh man. She's great. You know what I mean? Like, and, and that's, that's the other thing, like, you know, uh, you you just so we're so blessed in this country you know like that band was just so easy so mm. great like mm. yeah i did stuff but you know she could sing into like you know anything and it would be like you'd be like damn that chick is awesome mm. you know and so for me it was just like the best experience cuz i was just like they'd be out doing takes in the main room and I'd just be lying on the floor of the control room, like with my eyes closed, going, "Man, I, I, I'm so lucky. This oh, is so awesome. great." That's and they're like, wicked. "Ben, Ben, are you there?" <laughs> it was a good. And I was like, "Oh, it was so great!" Like a little hand would pop up, I'd hit the talk back, and be like, "That was awesome," you know. Um, and so, yeah, that was the first full beginning to end record that I did. Um, and then I finally convinced Mahalia to let me do a Soulmates album, which was great. Right. Um, actually, I finally convinced myself I could do it probably. And that's that's out? Yeah, that's okay. Hard Expectations. Yeah, oh. so that's the most recent one. So, um, And that was incredible too just because, you know, we've been playing together as a band in the lineup that it currently is for 10 years at least, mm-hmm. I think, maybe. And, and what's that lineup? Uh, so it's me on bass, Franco Ragged on guitar, Dave Hibbard on drums and um, – and Clayton and Lachlan Dolly. Okay, cool. So, and then basically bring in a revolving cast of extras. Right. If we can, you know, we, yep. we get Andy Bickers and Anthony Cable and Matt Keegan on the horns if we can. And obviously like Jade, Juanita, Prinny, um, you know, Darren Percival, Gary Pinto. They're, these are all singers that like yeah. if they're in town, yeah, I got the night off, we'll come and sing, let's yeah, do the gig. It's you know? awesome. And so that's kind of the, the core, the core band is that rhythm section and, and we were lucky enough that because Mahalia had been working with Joe Bonamassa and we'd done an, an album as the soulmates with Joe Bonamassa. Mm-hmm. Um, here or overseas? Uh, that was actually here. Okay, so, yep. so we met we met Joe in – Mahalia and I met Joe in Amsterdam mm-hmm. randomly because we were on holidays in Europe and Jimmy was doing an EP and was like – he was like, oh, there's this song from your EP that I like and I'd like to do a version of it. And we're like, sure, great. And so he track he recorded it, and he was working with this guy Kevin Shirley, mm-hmm. and who'd produced like Chisel from Last Wave of Summer. He's done like Silverchair, and you know he's like one of the biggest rock producers in the world. And he goes, and Jimmy's like, "Oh, I'm going to go over to Amsterdam, meet Joe. We're going to track the guitar solo for this song. Do you want to come?" And so Harry and I are like, yeah, all right, you know, day trip to Amsterdam. I think we're in Rome or something, you know. We're in Rome on a family holiday. Awesome. And so we flew to Amsterdam for the day. I'd never been to Amsterdam. I don't think I'd ever been to Rome either at that 
so I was like, everything was like gravy for me. I was like, this is the best holiday ever. Um, <laughs> and so we flew over to Amsterdam, basically got in the cab, drove straight out to the recording studio, met Joe. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, great. Oh, you wrote this song? Yeah, we wrote this song. Oh, man, I love this song. It's great. Me and Hay are there going, oh, man, you know, we just basically ripped this song off Betty Davis. It's like basically half Betty Davis, half free because they're the two bands that we love, you know. And they're like, what, who? Like they're like, we know free, but who's Betty Davis? And we're like, oh, man, you guys don't know Betty Davis? So we sent them a copy of Betty Davis, This Is It, this this album that we all were obsessed with um, in The Soulmates and we used to do like Betty Davis songs for years, you know. And uh, and we left thinking nothing of it, like, wow, it was great. It was a really great opportunity. Flew back to Italy and had the, had our family holiday. It was really great. And then we get back and Kevin Shirley kind of gets Mahaley's number and calls and says, man, me and Joe are obsessed with Betty Davis. <laughs> like we are, we just both of us have just like, whoa, we want to make an album of Betty Davis songs. And Mahaley's like, okay. And he's like, what if we came to Australia and made a Betty Davis album? She's like, if you're paying, we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and he was like, yeah, no, Joe, we want to do it. And he was like, really? Like we're like, okay. You know, because most you you know you're a bit skeptical. You know, you're like, why would a guy like two guys like this, who are just some of the best in their trade in the world, want to come and work with the Soulmates, this band from Sydney? You know, like, and anyway, like Joe flew out and uh, Kevin flew out, and we came here to, to Jimmy's studio again, and in four or five days, tracked that whole album. And uh, and that was another thing for me. Watching over Kevin's shoulder, yeah, right. Produce was right, really awesome. And so we made that record, um, which then from that, Mahaley's been working with Joe Bonamassa ever since, and yep. Jade and Juanita yep. as well. Basically, mm-hmm. he heard the girls and was like, "These girls are amazing!" And yeah. like I want them for myself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so they've been working with him ever since, and um, and in and when they started touring with him. We met Kirk Fletcher, who's this other incredible blues guitarist um, and one of the sweetest, kindest guys you'd ever meet. Like he's just one of the best people in the world. And he, we, we were chatting like on the, on this tour we were doing and he was like, man, I'd love to come to Australia and make an album and blah, blah, blah. And we're like, man, like let's do it, let's do it. And then randomly uh, some guy like hit him up and said, hey, I want you to come to Australia and do some shows. And he was like, okay. And so he, he booked it in and then... We're like, okay, let's make an album with Kirk when he comes. Okay, great. So we booked a few gigs in Cairns. Mm-hmm. I don't know why because I think that we got offered some gigs. So let's go to Cairns. <laughs> yeah. And we went up there <laughs> and just jammed a bunch of like Soulmates tunes and some stuff we'd been working on and writing, did two shows up there. And then we came back to Sydney and made the Hard Expectations album. So I engineered and played bass on all of that. And produced it and mixed that um, with Kirk Fletcher playing guitar on all of it, which was great. And um, and yeah, and put that out. And, and then snowballing from that, uh, started engineering in uh, being the engineer of this studio in Jimmy's house because I was just in here so much. Yeah, you know the stuff. That then, then yeah, I ended up engineering and playing bass on Jimmy's latest album. Criminal record, yep. and um, now I'm here doing stuff with Chisel, and, right? And I'm so lucky. 
that's awesome. So is this studio also um, hired out for other people to come and use? Not so not, much, not, hey, not yeah. Not really. Like every now and then, like I know like Case Chambers has been through here, but it's more like it. Jimmy's so busy and everything yeah, right. Jimmy's associated with. Sure. And, and then also now Mahalia and myself and like we did Karen – Karen Lee Andrews album here, mm. um, which was great. Um, but yeah, he he's in here so much. Like, yep. we're working. Like that's something we fin- we only finished tracking because we did it in like kind of gaps between touring for Jimmy's album. Sure, and we'd finish that and turn that around in like a month or two from the last tracking sessions. Then since then, we've been you know the Chisel guys have been working on stuff and. Um, yeah, it's just kind of always in use, which is a great thing. But I, great I guess thing. as a yeah, musician, yeah. you know, yeah. like, you know, there's always something going on, you know. So, yeah, it's kind of like a – it's it's private but yeah, yeah, and friends, you to- know what to- I mean? Totally, yeah. totally. It's the, the dream studio, yeah. which, which I'm trying to do, you know, the same yeah. thing at, at yeah. my house in the Highlands. So. Oh, great. Awesome. So you're building, you're building something. Oh, I saw something on your Instagram. Yeah, you're yeah. Renovations. Yeah, and- I love debt. So I <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the bank and said, "Hey, I'm a musician." Yeah, and they went, "Great." Yeah, what can we have when it fails? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm trying to basically build a studio to really push further on what we we're talking about before, where I want to be able, if I hear someone that I love or a voice or a musician, and go, "Hey, I know you got no money. Come." Yep. Let's do a single or something. Awesome. I can do it in a couple of days. I love what you do. Take this product. Go, you know. Man, that's fantastic. Well, you that's know. That's so cool. Obvi- obviously, like, I need to financially make it viable. So, like, I'm going to, ha- like, if someone can pay, like, I'm like, of yes, course. please. Of course. But the the main aim of it, like, in an ideal world was that I can be comfortable enough working, touring and recording that if there's someone who's a friend or a or someone that I hear that's so great but doesn't have that opportunity, I can do something to help because those little, you know, it doesn't seem like much at the time, but those little leg ups really change people's lives, you know. For me as a musician, like Darren Percival saying, hey, man, come to Sydney and do a show. Mm. I was like, oh, man, yeah, I'd love that. And he was true to his word. He came up. They weren't the greatest gigs in the world. I was playing at like establishment and marble bar. When you live in Sydney, you're like, oh, I've got a gig at establishment and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but for me, like that, when I got those gigs, I thought I had fucking made it. Yeah. I thought I was like top of the hill, you know, and it, that changed my life. Those little, those tiny moments of like, it's not a big deal for him, but, you know, I I owe him the life I live now, really, because without him bringing me up, I wouldn't yeah, have met yeah. Jade, wouldn't have met Mahalia. Sure. You know, and so I, I want to try and pay it forward, you know, as a musician. That's the that's the great dream. Like, you know, when you meet your idols and they're nice to you or you meet someone that you respect and they, you know, it might just be like a, hey, man, you're doing great. But then that kid might go and be the next Jimmy Page or yeah. Phil Spector. Well, hopefully not Phil Spector, but, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> the old and Phil then Spe- I got a gun. Yeah, yeah, and then I <laughs> shot that chick. <laughs> oh, but, you know, what I mean, like ho- hopefully – you know, and that's the the community thing of music. I think we forget sometimes. Yep, is how important it is. You know, not to be a downer, but like we we're losing too many yep. of our friends. Yep. You know, because it's hard. 
it's really hard this life and so I think it's even more important just the way the world's going for music it's not getting any easier the money is getting less not more mm-hmm. um the opportunities are, are harder to come by mm-hmm. so if we can if you're in a position to do some help or some good you know I think you kind of you, you have to mm. you know if we want to keep this incredible music scene that we have here like yeah you know looking at you know my wife's working with one of the arguably one of the the best biggest blues guitarists in, in the world, world yeah. you know like <laughs> yeah. she's from australia yep. you know she's a just she's a chick that like yeah her dad's like jimmy barnes but man i met her she was doing gigs at the fringe she was doing gigs at the civic mm-hmm. she was doing the slog like the rest of us mm-hmm. you know and you know Jade, incredible singer. And, mm. and so these people, like Joe, Reese Winans, who was in Steve Ray Vaughan's band, mm-hmm. they go, man, you Australians are great. Yeah. You know, we are. There's some of the best musicians in the world, yep. in this tiny country. Yep. You know, so we got to, like, help each other out, you know, because, mm. you know, we don't get enough help from the government or, you know, there's just... No grants and stuff no, like Well, no, you know, like... You know, for what we give <laughs> to the world as as artists, not just musicians, like painters, film mm. people, now the percentage rate of like people that are good from Australia is pretty high, I reckon. Yeah. You know, in New Zealand, it's the same. But yeah. New Zealand has a good community of helping artists. You mm-hmm. know, too, and and that's that's you know, if I was bigger you know, had more sway, I'd definitely be trying to advocate for more for helping, especially in the mental health thing, like support act, mm. stuff like that. It's so important. Mm. And so you might not be able to like give money, but as a musician or an artist, if you can give time, then, you know, that's just as valuable to musicians. You yeah. Know? So. I want to do a, um, a episode on mental health. Oh man. In, in the, yeah. in the music industry, like, you it know. was actually Ian Jones's idea. Do you know Ian Jones? Yeah, yeah, Jonesy. Yeah, Jonesy's yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah, because we we chatted a while back, and yeah, he 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 suggested it. It's so. it's it's important. Like for for me, you know, my father in law is Jimmy Barnes. You know, like he's like a iconic rock star of Australia. You know, he's a working class man. Blah blah blah. But then, like we've just done these working class boy and working class man tours where he's just yep. talked about publicly. Things that unfortunately so many people in the world have gone through, mm-hmm. and um, and that, and that's the thing. Like, I'm so proud of him in that to have the courage to to be who you are, like who he is, you know, and then just come out and go, yeah, well, I'm this guy, but actually, this happened to me. I feel like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've never really felt grateful for my life until very recently because I just had all the, you know, all this shit going on and all this shit from my past. And the the amount of help that he's given people just from telling the truth of his life and his story when you're someone who's that big, like I'm like, man, he's a hero, you know what I mean, like to musicians because mm. we all like listen to his story and go, oh, shit. You know? <laughs> yeah. Damn, you know. Yeah. But, but what he's done is definitely like cracked that thing that a lot of musos have where we just don't talk about that stuff yeah and like to have the one of the if not the biggest singer in australia go yeah i got issues (laughs) 
and I'm happy to talk about them. Yep. That's that's powerful, you know. It's like breaking down that like, you know, masculine bravado thing mm. that that a lot of guys have, you know. And as as musicians, we need to we we talk with our instruments, mm. we talk with our art. But that mental health thing, sometimes you just got to talk. Yeah, man. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's real and that's real important. And as as I get older, that stuff is really important in the making of the music. You know, like you got to get to the heart of what it is. And sometimes to get to the heart of the music is there's it's got nothing to do with music. You know what I mean? Like 100%. you know, um as a musician, as just an instrument player, as I learn more about just being a good man, I get better at I'm I'm more of a good musician, you know, because that stuff it, it comes out of you. It's you know, music when you play a guitar there's some you're feeling that G chord that you're playing, you know, right? Like, or you know, when you hit that snare, that's a feeling, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, and and the the true greats are the guys that like when they just hit a snare, you go, oh, damn, mm. you know, like, and that's because it's coming from somewhere, and that's the thing with like great singers like Jimmy, like when you hear his story, you go. That's where that voice comes from. That's mm. where he's singing. Like you, like damn. Okay. I'm just thinking about the si- the situation you're in in these last few weeks, having having Chisel in here. Oh, and not just Jimmy, but all of those guys. Man, oh man. Like you just I... you just sitting here watching them all. <laughs> like watching the art happen. Mossy and oh, oh man. man. And and the thing that's and great Cha- is Charlie Drayton. Charlie Drayton. Yeah, yeah. Fuck, yeah. Man. Oh, man. Who, oh, oh man! It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure yeah, yeah. recording him. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. I mean, and that's that's. I mean, these guys like. I got some stories, man. Collectively, uh, t- totally, and mm. just like seeing how they work too. Like they're they're right. all such different people. Mm-hmm. So different. They're like you know they're like family. Like you know where you love your brother. But there's something he does that really annoys you. So yeah. you're just like, oh, dude. But then in those moments when you're like a family and the huddle happens and you're on, like basically when you're on the stage, it's like we're the family. And like there's some magic when these guys get to, like I've been lucky enough to see them and I was really, really blessed to like, you know, I did some stuff with Steve before I was going to ask you about Steve, yeah. Yeah, mm. and like. You know, we did some writing many, many years ago and then um, I went and saw a chisel gig at the Clavelli Bowls Club mm. before they did, I think it was like they played at the V8s or something and so it was the band with Steve. And just like seeing chisel in a bowls club like yeah, right. like back in the day, right? it was just the best. Like, man, like the vibe. that They were just so tight. They are all like like about to like fall into each other because there's just so little room on the stage and you could tell that they were like, oh, get out of my way. Ah, yeah, ah, you're too loud. You're too loud. Yeah, right. Fuck, it was the best. It was just like the coolest vibe, you know. And yeah. and recently I, I got the opportunity. I'd never seen Midnight Oil Live either, right? right? And uh, they were doing a gig at the Green Greenpeace uh, warehouse just down the road like in uh, from where we are in. Alexandria or something and um, same thing, this tiny room, there was like maybe 300 people and they're just like ploughing through just hit after hit and I 
I, I like Moon Knight Oil, but I didn't get it, right? Because right. I just, as a kid, I listened to it and was like, yeah, that's cool, you know. And then when you see Peter Garrett on stage and the band just like going for it, like the guitars just sound incredible, I was just like, oh, man. Like, Rob Hurst just uh, Oh, dude. Rob like, Hurst doing Rob Hurst. That snare, wow. man. Like, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, <laughs> and you go, I get it now. I get yeah, it. Right. I get it. You know, like. Yeah. <laughs> like those those moments are the coolest because when you're in that contained small environment with that much energy, musical energy, you know, artistic energy, it's just like you're like you. It's like a wall hitting you. Like that that gig was incredible too. Like mm. man, his drum sounds are just killing too. Yeah, like that's that's my that's my. Uh, my studio obsession at the moment is like the coolest drum sounds I can get. Yeah, right. Okay. I'm like. I love nerding out on like, oh, yeah, so I saw this guy uses a mic here to get this sound and mm. how do you tune your drums to make it sound like that? And like, oh, how do I get this? Oh, tea towels. Oh, okay. You know, I'm like really obsessed with. Are you, are you, do you have that, um, that license to experiment a little bit with chisel or it's pretty much we kind of know. <sighs> I, I just don't, you know, some things. You just don't need to. Nah. <laughs> yeah, like, well, yeah. man, Charlie, dude, like that's yeah. what I mean. Like he'll just like. You know, I'll be sitting here getting ready to do a take and then I look up and he's like, I'm ready. And then he hits the snare. I was like, what did you do to the snare? Whoa, that's amazing. Like, mm. and he's so musical. That's mm. what I love about Charlie is that like, you know, um, he just plays music. Yep. He doesn't play drums. He plays music. And that's cool. It's a bit of a, that Ringo thing. You know what I mean? Like yep. Ringo can't do a drum solo, but man, he can play a song. Mm-hmm. Um, and And Charlie's a bit like that too where... You know he can play. You know he's got chops, but like just the w- the way where he hits the snare and the w- where he like kind of swings the hi hats, all that kind of stuff. For me, <laughs> sitting in here in the studio, I'm just like, oh man. When they all leave, you know, and I'm like just doing a little rough mix at the end of the day. I'm just like solo the drums, and I'm like listen to that shh shh I'm like, oh, yeah. that just feels so good. Oh <laughs> man, I just want to take that home and just jam to it. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like so that that's what I mean. Like they every day and that's what's so great about being in the studio. On the good days, you're just like, How did I end up here mm. doing this, listening mm. to that? Mm. That is awesome, you know? But mm. man, Charlie is killer. Yeah, man. Oh yeah. Um we're talking about all these positives in the studio. Mm. What are some of the biggest challenges in a recording studio? Um so, something I learned from from watching Kevin Shirley is that it's actually so little about the technical. When technical things happen, that's a that's a downer, obviously. Like sometimes, you know, something will break and you're like, oh, okay, Pro Tools isn't working. Right. Coffee break for an hour. Oh, okay, no, Pro Tools isn't coming back. To, you know, like th- those things are bad. But from Kevin, one of the – most important things I learned about being a producer is got nothing to do with any of the gear in this studio. Mm-hmm. It's just to do with like just being aware of the vibe and just knowing, you know, knowing when to joke, knowing when like, hey, guys, let's just go and have a coffee. Like let's just go outside. making a joke or something. You're knowing yep. when to pull back and push and that's the real when, – when, when something goes wrong in the studio – it's usually a vibe thing. Like if people are a bit tired and the take's not working and 
I've been guilty it's of. It's just it. knowing when to stop flogging the dead horse. And totally, and he's and that's something I learned. Like we were doing a a session with Kevin, and he was like, "Yep, okay, next song." And we're like, "Oh, but we haven't got to take it." And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, next song." Okay. And we're like, we're all a bit like, "Oh, oh, oh, man, oh," you know, like talking amongst us, like, oh, just whatever, man, you know. I thought that was fine. Yeah, man, you were great. Yeah, you were great too. <laughs> you know, like, you know, as musicians do when you're the musician. Yeah, no, I, I thought I was fine. You know? Went to do the next song, smashed it because he sensed that we, you know, he'd like fired us up a little bit and he goes, yeah, that was perfect. One take. Let's go back to the other song. And we're like, oh, we nailed that one take. He goes, yeah, we're awesome. I told you we're awesome. Yeah, yeah. we're great. Do the song back and then we like nailed it. And that's a skill. That is an art. Mm. Like just knowing how to wrangle five, six, ten personalities, you know what I mean? That's the real key. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that, that's, that's the other thing I'm obsessed with. My nerd side is like drum sounds. <laughs> but then on a more esoteric level, it's like understanding how to just be welcoming in the environment and just catering to get the best thing to happen. You know what I mean? Like, because mm. that's the idea. And that's where, like, Kevin's great. He pulls killer drum sounds, you know. Like, his mix vibe stuff is, like, he's great. Like, his rock mixes are just killing. But in the studio, it's nothing to do with the technical. Like, it, his whole thing that I basically, that I admire is whatever it takes to catch that lightning in the bottle. Of the of the of the take, you know, like get that drum take. So you, from that first downbeat, you feel energy, you know, and that that's the true hard thing about being a producer in a studio, mm. you know. And and when when it goes wrong, is when you can't get that vibe. That's mm. when it's like drawing blood from a stone. That's mm. when it's hard work, you know. Mm. Like if someone just doesn't want to be there from the outset, and it's all down vibes. That's hard, you know what I mean. That's the that's the bad yeah. <laughs> studio moment. I guess to be able to develop that skill well, you need the technical thing down, eh? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Because you know you could be trying to up the vibe, but <laughs> if you can't get somebody or well, that's that's you can't where, get a good sound. That might be half the problem, eh? Uh, yeah, yeah, like headphones for musicians. Yeah, headphone sends. That yeah. is the bane of many. Uh, oh right, okay. Oh man, like if there, if I was going to say there was one thing that could kill a vibe in a studio, it's a bad headphone mix mm. for musicians. Mm. As a producer, like I spend a lot of time trying to make sure that the headphone mix is vibing. Which in in a, in a way is like you got to make sure that like when you pull the drum sounds, you want the drums to sound good with nothing on them. You want to run them into the preamp, and you hear them go, boom, and you're like, that sounds nice, sweet. Anything we add from there is just going to be gravy. And then you send that to the headphones, and if they if they're there and they put the headphones on, they've had their coffee. You sit down and they go, boom, pa, and they go, ooh, you're you've won, you you've it. won the battle. Awesome. Whereas if you put your headphones on, and it's like. And it was like, oh, and they're like, oh man, I said this headphones are terrible. Yeah. Oh man, oh the, the jack's wiggly and it's like cutting in and out. Oh, and then you can just see their vibe is like, ooh, you yeah. know, yeah. 
And I, I've been guilty of having a tantrum in a studio over headphones before when I was like back in the day. I was like, man, I can't work like this. This is like how am I meant to play like a, with any feeling when it's just like <laughs> that's what it sounded like in the headphones. Mm. So that is very important to me, I think, you know, because it's just like then you're giving the musicians, you know, you're asking them to like play for you. So you kind of got to make it so they sound nice to themselves, you know. Mm. Um, so yeah, that is the one technical thing that I'd say mm. you really got to get across mm. is that. Like because when you think about the other aspects of it, if you're recording a punk band, they'll probably think it's hip if you just use one microphone. Yeah, well, yeah, right. <laughs> Guys, I'm going to use this $50 microphone that I got from J-Car. Yeah. And we're going to make the whole album with that. And if they're a, like, punk rock band, they'll be like, man, this is awesome. <laughs> but if you're someone else, they'll walk in and go, you're fired, you know. Like, yep, so yep. you kind of need to, like, know yep. when you got to be technical and when you just got to not, mm. you know. Mm. Um, like a funny story is, like, one of the first times I engineered for Kev, for Kevin Shirley, I set up something like 20 microphones on the drum kit because I'm like, yeah, top and bottom of the tom, yeah, you know, two on the kick, two two rooms, one mono room, stereo overhead, you know, like I just went to town and he walks in and he just like <laughs> just like starts moving microphones away from the drum kit. I was like, oh, did I not put them in the right spot? And he goes, yeah, they should be back in the cupboard, man. And I was like, oh, shit, okay, sorry, you know, but. That that was a cool lesson. He was like, well, what do we need this for? That's what this is. That's just doing more of this. And then I just got to phase line this with that and then do this. And and then that, what what even is that? You know, like, because mm. I'd set up, there's a, there's a microphone I love that's called the worst mic for drums, right? Where it's like basically a, I saw it online, some, some guy in Germany. I love it. Um, <laughs> but basically you, you set this SM57 up, like pointing at your knee. Yep. And you have it just over the lip of the kick drum. So so the capsule's like kind of like you looking down at the kick. Yep. And then you like just smash it through a compressor or something. And you know what I mean? It's like the coolest sounding mic. I love it. Yeah. It's really nasty and it it doesn't work for most things, but right. oh man, I love it. Yeah. But that's the So I'd, you use you use that instead of like sending like a a parallel send to a compressor. Yeah, like I, I do it when I'm mixing. I do, I do a bit of sidechain mm-hmm. compression. Like uh, I'll send, like if I'm doing something, um, usually I'll send the kick and snare at the very least. Uh, I'll bust them out mm-hmm. and have like a. I do most of my mixing in the box because I just yep. don't have. Yep, yep. Haven't won lotto yet, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll bust them out to like a Neve compressor or something, yep. and just kind of like just to get a bit of that, you know, glue vibe happening. Um, But now I'm really trying to commit on the way in a bit more. Like, because I think that's one thing as you get to be more confident. Yeah, you um, want to get it right at the source. Yeah, like so I'll go, okay, I know this room, this studio pretty well, so I'll just, I'll compress something a little bit. Very rarely do I over-compress anything going in because... Compression is one of those things where if you overdo it, there's no coming back. No one's going to be happy with you. <laughs> yeah. But things like like I'll I'll use EQ a lot more uh bravely than I used to because I'm uh-huh. like, "No man, I want that kick to have some bottom end. I want to see the speakers freak out." So I'm just going to like 
put like, you know, 60, 60 hertz on the pool tech and just like, just crank it. So it's like, boom. and so in here, everyone's like, whoa, dude, you're going <laughs> to blow up the speakers. I'm like, I hope I blow up the speakers, you know, but like I'm, I'm trying to commit to more of that yep. because um, that that's the other thing, like having that faith, like catching, catching that vibe, you know. It's, once again, it depends on what you're doing. Like this, uh, like with Mahalia's album, and and it's the soulmates. It's a band. They're all my mates. So they trusted me. I trusted them. So I could take a few chances. And, yep. you know, there's a few things on there that I screwed up, but, you know, it's okay. That's cool. <laughs> you know, like we made it work, you know. We're like, ah, it's all right. I'll just replace it later. I'll fix that. Or we'll do this. Yeah, no worries, you know. Mm. Um, and, and with Karen's album, she was really great. She had a lot of faith in me to just do my thing. And so... Obviously, Yanya, I love recording Yanya as a drummer because when he's in the studio, he's so conscientious. Like he's like, oh, what do you need? I was like, I'd like it to be like this, you know. So basically the drum sounds on that, he got, um, I think it was his, like, uh, what was it, like a sonar, like the little pearls, perloid. The vintage. Yeah, the vintage, vintage soul. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. He was one of those guys. Yeah, man. And we got the big fat snare thing on the snare pretty much for the whole yep. album sessions, yep. which um, that's one of the coolest things ever. I love that. Mm. Yeah, and so basically I said to him what I wanted and he was like, yeah, man, I, I can do that. Do you want me to hit harder, softer? And I was, it's such a joy to work with people like that, you know. And yep. so that was the thing with, with that recording i was like great i know how you're going to touch the drums perfect and so i could just like drive the preamp so that way it just has this real the drums sound real fat you know and that's not really anything to do with me mm-hmm. that's just like yanya played perfect you know and then on say the soulmates album with dave hibbard i love dave he's probably one of the i'd say in the world, I would say he's probably one of the drummers I'd love to record with or would ever want to. Like, you know, if I had an opportunity to say, you know, who would you love to record on drums? I'd be like, I'm right. already recording Dave Hibbard. You know what I mean? Like, because just the way he thinks about drums in a recording process is incredible. Mm-hmm. When he thinks like that on a live gig, it's more stressful. But, you know, <laughs> hang on, I just got to change the snare and the hats and this symbol as well. Yeah, no. After each song. Sometimes. No, no, he, oh, sometimes, oh, really? man, sometimes. Oh, right. Live. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. It's it's it drives drives us mad, but yeah. he's right, you know. Like be, like it's not. I swear, every gig we do, that's like a bigger gig. The most of the time, people come and say, "Man, the drums sounded killer," hmm. because he just knows what sounds good for what song. And so on on the Soulmates album, if you if you listen to Hard Expectations, like. All the drum sounds, they, they change pretty drastically throughout the whole album. And that's Dave going, oh, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Wait. I'm like, oh, okay. And he goes, puts this ride cymbal on, he just hits it. And I'm like, oh. And he goes, is that better? I'm like, man, it sounds, by the end I was like, Dave, I, I can't really tell the difference, Dave. Uh, you know, I love you, but I don't know. I've got to run back out and play bass on this. I still don't know the song. Can we just hurry up? Um, but, you know, when it came to mixing it, I was like, Ah oh, man, you pissed me off, Dave. But damn, thank you so much. Cause yeah, right. 
you know, the drum sounds he gets are just killer. For, for vintage stuff. So he's looking at the big picture when he... A hundred percent. Like awesome. sonically. And, and for that vintage stuff, yep. you know. But then um, was a T, Warren Trout, mm-hmm. for like probably one of my other favourite drummers in the world. Just like his touch on the drums is incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the, the when he hits a tom... There's just a resonance to it that's just like I just don't I haven't really heard anyone else get in Australia. You know what I mean? Just hit the drum with that. The, just the way he hits the drum. You know, I'm just like, damn man. Mm. Um, he's an incredible drummer for yeah. like yep. just like laying that stuff down. Like mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh, this is awesome. Mm. You know? Um, and again, that's about knowing your drums as well. Because, totally. I mean, as you may know about. You know, say for example, a tom. You know, depending on the type of wood or the heads, yeah. if you hit it too hard, it chokes. Totally. You know, and that's what I mean. It's like it's like he like whips the drums. I always, it, yeah. I'm always like watching him, like going, "Man, he's like whipping that thing." Mm. Like, and it's true, like because they he get he, they sing with him, like, and and I've mm. been lucky enough to record. Obviously, he played on half of Jimmy's latest album along with Jack. Oh, did he? Okay. Right. Yeah. So right. what was it? Was it played? Oh, yeah, I think it was about fifty-fifty split of Jackie and and Warren because Jackie was out on tour with um, Lockie Dolly Trio and, and Rose Tattoo, I think, for, okay. a, for a bunch of the album process. So Was would come in, and um, and I'd recorded Was before I got Was to play drums on the first Reese Masson EP that I did. Okay, because I was like, man, I get I can call Warren <laughs> as a producer. I was like, yes, all right. <laughs> um, and uh yeah man he he's like the other sonically so far removed from say dave but just that heavy touch like it's funky it swings like he's got a great swing but he rocks mm. and that's like just so fun to play to as a bass player right but also to record as a and it's much like charlie like they have this swing to them when they play, even if you're playing a straight feel, yeah, I got you. Like, um, you just feel like that something's swinging, and you're like, "What is it? I don't know what it is, but it feels great," you know. Um, yeah, so it's real. I'm real lucky that I get to, and 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 as a musician, like you know, that's the thing. Like doing this, that makes me better as a bass player because mm. I get to listen to that all yeah. day. So I'm like, woo. Yeah. And I can a- I analyze it. Like when I'm mixing that stuff later, I listen and go, oh, that's what he's doing. Mm. Okay, cool. So then when I go to do the next thing, I'm like, hey, man, like can we try doing this with the hi-hats? And they go, oh, oh yeah, cool. And I'm like, yeah. Because sometimes like, you know, especially with drums, like if, if you leave an eighth note out on a hi-hat on a beat, like you just go, can you have the hi-hat? And then all of a sudden that song is just the coolest Comple- yeah, yeah, that's feel right. ever. Completely different. And and that's the and that's the other thing for being in the studio that I think really helps musicians is you you, you play and you're like man that was killer and then you come in and you listen and you're like whoa there's about four million too many notes there you know um, and that's the other thing that from being in the studio um, I've learned is to just shut up and play less mm. which you know something I've can still learn because I overplay all the time. <laughs> I get carried away. Yeah. I get too carried away. Yeah. But. Yeah. Um, what's one bit of gear that you wish you had in here? 
Oh, in the studio? Yeah, man. Oh, it depends on the day. Um, so you're, this is mostly digital, yeah? Uh, no, I mean, well, apart from you. yeah, basically all in this studio, it, it's kind of, it's there's not like a old school console. Yep. But we've got all the outboard like preamps, yep. like, uh, what is it, eight? Vintech Neve copies, a mm-hmm. couple of Neve 1073 copies. API. Some, some Burl, your API, yep. uh, Chandler's, mm-hmm. um, a bunch of great compressors. Yep. Um, so, so it's. Oh, I heard you say DBX 160 there. They yeah, are. there they are down yeah, the yeah. bottom. Yeah. 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 Um, and I love a distressor, man. Yeah, oh, oh man, the distressor. Yeah, that's, it's, that's killer. The thing I, I'm, probably the thing I love the most in the studio is that. There's a stereo 1176 down there. Yep. Um, and uh, when I'm doing like a big tracking session, I just put the drums through it and just all buttons in. Yeah. And in, in this, the drum room here is just, when you get the mic placement right, it's just the coolest thing. It's like, it's like, you know, John Bonham would have loved it here. Yeah. You know, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, man, he would have been like, this drum room sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, but in terms of a piece of gear I wish I had, oh, look, I, I, you know, it's a big piece of gear, but I would love, like, to be able to just mix on, like, an old SSL or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I was lucky. I went and did a thing with Kevin Shirley. He, he does this thing called Mix with Caveman, where basically you can go and hang out at his studio in Manly or he's got a studio in Malibu. And you go and basically mix a track on his desk and he'll, you know, mm. he talks about his process and what he does and, and I was real lucky that he, he invited me down to do it and, and it was actually just before I started mixing Mahalia's album, the Hard Expectations album. So I was like, great, I'll take one of the tracks that we recorded. So I'm like, cool, this is perfect. And, um, and basically you get to mix it on his big, he's got like a modern one, an SSL, uh, I think it's a duality console. And um, just the tactile, it was like you're playing an instrument. And for me, that was just so fun. Like, I loved it. Like, because the one downside of just the cost problem, but is that, um, other, you know. A lot of work. Well, you, a lot of upkeep. A lot of upkeep. But then, the, then when you're just not with that stuff, you're just in a computer all the time. Mm. So you, you can really get carried away editing and like chopping and crossfading and doing this and like oh oh that waveform's like oh it's too that's maybe digital just I don't know you know um mm. which is cool like if you're doing like modern stuff it's got to be super clean it's got to be super tight but uh, you know I've been lucky that <laughs> I'm lucky that most of the stuff I get to do is is not super clean and super tight because I'd probably be in OCD hell it's <laughs> like, oh, I can still hear a pop or a crackle here. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you get real stuck in the computer sometimes and that's that's a bit hard where – so the dream for me would be to have, you know, an SSLE series would be great or just some kind of like killer analog console. So like when it's mix time, you just turn the music on, get up off your chair, start dancing to the track and, and mix the track. Yeah. And that's Isn't cool. it – it's, it's um, Jack White – doesn't have a computer screen in his studio. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Well, like we, in the studio yeah. here, we, we made a choice to move the screen so it's to the side, so it's not in the centre of the, the monitors. Cause, right. Is that where it used to be? Yeah, basically it used to be there. But then we just thought, 
then when you're mixing, because we've got this little, um, it's a C24, it's like a basically just like a controller mm-hmm. for Pro Tools, but okay, you can do levels and panning and stuff on it. Um, so basically what I'll do now is I'll set up like any plugins that I like. So I'll put some like Fairchilds and stuff on things or a pool, bunch of pool techs on the drums and 1176 on the drums. Um, so I'll set up my little things that I do all the time, a few EQs, just do some real basic housekeeping. And then I like to, in this studio, just like, yeah, zero the board and just turn it up loud and just kind of get a bit of a party mix vibe going. Mm. Because then instantly you're like, oh, man, this is fun, and you just start getting into the tune and whatever. And then, like, you know, you can maybe go and have a cup of tea and then come back and get more detailed with the like, okay, Okay. Oh no, I've panned too. I, I should pan this over. Oh, that's better panned over here. Oh yeah, let's. Do, oh, and then you do all the automation rides and whatever. But um, that's what I mean. The dream of old school mixing, where it's like you yep. know, it's you're a musician, you know, as much as the band. Like you're just there on the mixing desk and like, like uh, who's the, who's the one? Um, the incredible, famous old like dub. Oh, what's it? Uh, Lee Scratch Perry, mm. you know, like he's famous. He would ride that mixing desk like an instrument, you know, bra, 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 all that yeah. stuff, you know, like yeah. those dudes that they yeah. do, they do gigs like that with the desk, and that they basically that ride the song and like create another song out of this like yep. bass basis that the band played, you know, yeah, and that that's the dream. So if anyone wants to like you know loan me quarter of a million dollars for an SSL. <laughs> I'll mix your album for free. <laughs> um, um, are your kids musical at all? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, my, my eldest my eldest is a really great singer. Like oh, awesome. From a real young age, she... Um, Good pedigree. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I sing, but I don't say that publicly because right. I know who my family is. Um, <laughs> she, on the other hand, doesn't care. Um, no, she's she's a great singer from a real young age. Like I remember we were driving and she must have been like three or four and she was like really obsessed with When the War Is Over, the chisel tune, and, and we're like, oh, you, you like this? And she said, I love it. And we're like, okay, sing this part. She sang and then Haya started singing a harmony above and then I was like, okay, you stay on your note, and I sang the harmony below. And just nailed it. And so then, foolishly, I'm creating Monster, I know, but <clears throat> she was like, hey, if I get that part right, can I come and sing? And we're like, yeah, sure. And I, yeah, she must have been like four or something. And anyway, that we're doing that song in the set. She walks out with the microphone, spotlight goes on her. Everyone goes, oh. And she's just like, you could just see that thing in a the kid. They're like, oh, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm the shit, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like, oh, no, oh, no. And it was weird because she was, like, real and, and, like, real confident and then had this little period where she got a little, like, oh, I don't know, yeah. Um, always sings, though, like, constantly. And <laughs> Mahalia says that if the, if, if the music is after 1974, odds are she's not going to like it unless it's Prince. Mm. So... Ruby is like our eldest is is likes pop, <laughs> so 
<laughs> so it's I, I it, look, it is a little funny. But she'll just constantly be singing like Post Malone or whatever and my head is just like, Oh god, this is the worst. She just won't stop singing it, you know. And I I'm equally to blame because I I've got this thing where I'll try and be even more on the like pulse of what's what musically something's happening. So I'll get out there and like go. I got my horses in the back. She's like, oh, dad. And then she won't sing that song anymore. And so if I get out in front, right. she'll be like, oh, dad sang that first. Okay, I'm, you know. So, but then she'll find something else. Right. Like she'll be like, okay. oh, yeah, what, what about the Jonas Brothers? And I was like, I don't know that one. She's like, yeah. And then she'll sing that for two weeks straight. And then you'll learn it. And- yeah. And then I'm just walking around singing, oh, my soccer. Um, but yeah, no, she's great. And she actually, she's nine now. And the other night, Mahalia had a gig at the Camelot Lounge in Marrickville. And we're driving down because she's like, hey, mum, it's a public holiday. I never get to come to gigs anymore. Can I come? And we're like, yeah, you can come to the gig, sure. So we're on the way down driving from the Southern Highlands. It's like an hour and a half drive. And she starts singing along with the songs from the Hard Expectations album because obviously she heard it constantly while I was mixing it at home because I just did it in my study when we mixed the album. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and she starts singing and she's like, hey, you know, if I um, if I learn the parts, could I do like a song or two? And we're like, oh, yeah, sure, sure, okay, you know. Well, let's let's try it. And so we put the album on, and Mahali's singing, and I sing a harmony part. And she's like, where where should I sing? And we're like, well, you sing this part. You sing the top parts because they're the easiest to hear. She starts singing, and we're like, okay, that's that's good. Yeah, that's actually really good because she's like, I know this song, Dad. And I'm like, yeah, I know you know the song, but it's. You know, stop being a smarty pants. <laughs> anyway, in the hour and a half drive, it went from one song to basically she ended up singing on the whole gig, doing BVs for the whole gig, basically. Oh, wow. And so the girls, Juanita and Jade, were doing it and they rocked up late. So they only had like 10 minutes to rehearse together um, with Ruby, our eldest, and, and then but they just got up and did the gig. Oh, man, and as the so gig cool. went on, she just got more and more confident and, and we were doing like Natural Woman, Aretha Franklin, and <laughs> it was it was really cute. But she just like was like, you make me, just belting like in the whole bandstand. We're all just like, damn, Ruby, sorry, woo! <laughs> you know? Um, so, yeah, it's it's awesome. It's awesome. She's really talented. The youngest one is probably going to be a drummer. Cool. <laughs> She's obsessed with drums. Yep. So, and you're so. telling me before she's wild. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She she may be a good singer, yeah. but she's not like Ruby could sing in tune straight away. Like, right. like we'd put on Sesame Street when she was like two and there'd yeah. be that Gladys Knight ABC, which is just awesome. And she would sing along, you know, like in, you know, in key, like, and you're like, oh, okay. Whereas Rosie just screams. So you're like, okay. <laughs> she's she's starting to try and like un- sing more now, but she is obsessed with drums. She loves it, That's and great. and she she's funny because she got up on a basically having a birthday party, um, with with for I think it was Jimmy's birthday or something, and and he invited some friends over, and a lot of the time it descends into a jam, and so a bunch of the guys from the Wiggles were there, who Rosie's obsessed with. And so they're playing, they have this Irish band that they do and um, I, I think they end up just playing some tunes and Rosie gets up and just picks up a tambourine and everyone's like, oh, yay. But then Rosie's like 
standing there, front center, like full rock stance, like a grandfather, <laughs> just hitting the tambourine. Doom, ksh, doom, ksh, in time, doom, in time, and everyone's Nailed like, "Whoa, whoa, oh man!" <laughs> and then, and then I think it was like, I think Diesel was playing guitar, and she turns to him, she goes, "Play louder." <laughs> Full dictating the band And we're like Oh man This one's the band leader Ruby's the backing vocalist In the band But yeah no The kids Ruby's definitely Rosie We'll see what she wants to do That's awesome Yeah yeah, Awesome but, um, What's the rest of the year got? Uh, well basically I'm doing store. Doing this mm-hmm. uh, And how long How long How much more of this uh, I think I think we're we're done for now. The guys are just still writing. So, okay, cool. um, like the, this week that I'm in, uh, and then I get to I, actually I'm going out on tour in Europe with Jimmy in July. Okay, cool. Uh, we're doing a bunch of shows. Some, we're doing like Wembley, supporting ZZ Top, and a bunch of festivals. Oh wow! Yes, yeah, so that'll be cool. Um, and then we get back from that, hang out with the fam for a little while, which is good, and then. Go and do a gig with Jimmy in the Maldives. Um, oh, you poor thing! I know it's hard. You know? You're a, you're, you're okay. yeah, that's the best gig, man. Like, oh wow! Uh, and so we go and that's do like it. a corporate. No, no, it's oh, like right. this thing, like a, a surf. I went. We, we we did it last year. Okay. And um, basically, it's like a. It's called Surf Music in Paradise. And so they put on these surfing holidays with bands. Oh right. And it's cool. Like, and they asked Jimmy and. We didn't do it the first year, but they're like, you got to come. And they're like, hey, we want you to do it, Mahalia. And so we're like, all right, we'll do it. But we have to bring Franco, Mahalia's guitarist, because he's the only person in the band that surfs. And we're going right. to the Maldives and we're at Kanduma and apparently it's this killing wave. So Franco was like, oh, this is the best. <laughs> and so we went and did it. And uh, and I had a crack at surfing, I, you know. Mate, I just I thought I died so many times in those big waves, but yeah. you know, as a surfer, you're a good bass player. That's right, right. I'm, I'm, I'm incredible. Um, uh, and so we're doing it again this year. So we do that in September. Do a gig in Singapore on the way back. Land from Singapore, go straight into rehearsals. Do Jimmy's album tour. Uh, September through to November, December, I think. Mm. And then, um, and then, yeah, I'm not sure. It's plans. Haley will be out with Joe, so then I'll just be at home with the kids. And wow, 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 man, it's full on. Know. It is, it is, it's full mm. on. But like, the the cool thing is that, like, sometimes it's hard, you know, because being that I'm a musician and Mahaley's a musician, and we both tour. It's hard because, like, this last year, we've been separated from each other fair bit because she tours with Joe and then she'll get back and then I'll have to say do this for okay. two weeks so then I don't really see the fam that much but when you're not working you're just 24-7 with the family and that's that's the other cool thing about this job for yep. me yep. is even when you're like oh I've got no gigs I've got nothing happening when you have a family it's pretty great because you're like I've got nothing on so I'm just hanging out with my kids and playing all day and like you know, gardening or doing some mm. mundane stuff, but it's actually really fun, you know. So even even when you're not busy, it's great. So mm. that's that's awesome. But yeah, this year is crazy busy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for all of us. Yeah, no, that's awesome. All right, Ben, man, really dig your vibe. Ah, oh, thanks. Such man. a positive, happy dude. Oh, and some days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enjoying your life. 
Oh man, we're all we're all pretty lucky here. Mm. It's like you know. I feel lucky, like, <laughs> like being here, man. You know, like sitting in this room. It's oh awesome. man, awesome. I know it's great. It's yeah. great, and that's what I mean. It's just building. Life, I think, is about good vibes. Yeah, and and we all have bad days. Of course, I yeah. have lots, mm. but it's just trying to keep in mind. You know, Mahalia said to me like many years ago, it's like, I want you to wake up. And when I say, how are you, you say, good. Because if that's the first thing you say in the morning, then it's all up from there. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and I think. That's bloody hard though. It's real hard. But <laughs> but as as musicians and artists, that that joyous feeling is only as far away as your instrument is. And mm. that's, that's the thing to remember. Yeah, that's you know, cool. Which is, you know. We we have an outlet for our emotions, yeah. That's you know, cool. whereas an accountant probably can't like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Feeling real down, I might do some tax. Might uh, do some algebra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might might if, get if might they do, dig out the old abacus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. They, maybe they do feel joy doing that. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't you, know. if you're an accountant, hit us up. Yeah, each to their own. DM own. us and let us know the joy <laughs> you get from accounting, because musicians, we sure could use it. An accountant, yeah, that yeah. finds joy. Wicked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, Ben Rogers, thanks oh, so much, bro. Thank you so much, man. No worries, man. Thanks. All Cheers. Right, see you, bro. Bye.